0: The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, thank you, musicians, for those wonderful words and leading us so well. I hope you paid attention to some of those great words, the wonder of of the Incarnation. And building on that, I just came across a quote this morning from the early church. Uh, St. Augustine said this about what we celebrate this time of year. And let's, let's read these words together. Let them hit us. The maker of man became man. Let's read out loud together. That the bread of life might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey. That truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be bit, beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. This is the glorious paradox of the incarnation. And there's so many different levels we could see that on, but another one of those is the high king of heaven came to the lowest place of service. The master of the universe took on the very form of a bondservant, a slave, Philippians 2, we just read. And one of those paradoxes also that we're going to see today as you think of him coming in that way is that slavery is the path to freedom. In the Bible slavery is the path to be truly free. We saw that last week on a physical level in Exodus 21 how Israelites owing a debt to society had a path through slavery where they could be free of that debt and that bondage. Here's what our master Jesus taught in John 8:34 truly truly I say to you everyone who commits Sin is a slave to sin. He says, though if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free, truly. But free indeed is not free to do whatever you want, it's being freed. From how you were before to a new master and what he wants. Freed from sin that holds you back. He frees us from self-serving with these words. Whoever would be greatest among you must be slave of all. Mark 10 verse 44. Even as the son of man came in that way and redefined greatness. He came not to be served but to serve. And he said, greatness isn't about who serves you, it's about who you serve and how you serve. Believers are bound for freedom. That's what we're going to look at today. Liberated from Satan, but bound to serve the Savior by free grace. And this, is, and this paradox in our world is, is not how we think, it's not how the natural mind thinks. Unbelievers think they're actually free of God's law while they are spiritually in bondage to their sin and they don't even know it. And that's where we all were or would be but for the grace of God and some of you in that state even here right now. But God has a way to true freedom by a new kind of slavery, by bonds of love that he talks about in his word. And so I want to pick up where we left off last time in Exodus 21. We were talking about physical slaves and Freedom, but this picture of of redemption and salvation is so big that we want to continue that today and understand that God's uh, path of freedom is through this concept of slavery. And actually, Exodus 21 has the words go out, or free, or redeem 10 times. God did not make human slavery, sinners made slavery, but God is making a way out of it here in Exodus 21, and, and last week I labored to make the point that slave labor in the United States history is forbidden by a scripture and even this chapter, and if you missed it, you'll want to get that message, but for today, think of indentured servitude as we hear that word, and there could be no ungodly abuse, but there could be Godly affection. And this is where we want to pick up again Exodus 21, verse 5, where there's a scenario where if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl that he shall be his slave forever. And his And we'll stop there, but this becomes, as I mentioned last time, a spiritual image. And, And even in the writings of Moses, God would later say in the next book, these words, the sons of Israel are my slaves. Same word that's used here. They are my slaves that I have brought out. God's beloved forever people are his slaves who love and serve him. And this word for... Serving as a slave in Exodus 21, that same root word is used when God was telling Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. It's the verb form of that. And so this whole Exodus story isn't about God freeing Jewish slaves to just go their own way. It's to bring them into a new relationship where they serve their loving master and it's a total mutual love relationship. But even to the end of the Bible, Exodus 22 is a vision of forever on the new earth where it says this, there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his slaves shall serve him. The God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show his slaves the things which must soon take place. I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But the angel said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow slave with you. Some translations have the word servant, but it's the same word that Jesus used when he says everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. There's now a different kind of bond service, slaves of him forever, and the angel showed John and fellow slaves on earth about heaven where we will serve our master forever, total mutual love, but he's always going to be master, and we are his subjects. Even angels are slaves of God. And it's only in heaven, think about this, only in heaven are we going to be ultimately free of sin as we serve. So it's hard to even wrap our mind around that because of how sin taints even the way we think. But we are going to be free at last from sin in glory as we serve here. But this is a, a massive theme in Scripture, spiritual slavery, that I said I would continue today. So I want to turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 6, where... Paul builds on this in the context of talking about law and grace, which is what we've been studying. But before we just move on to the next subject in the law in the Old Testament, the, the New Testament gospel, I think, really fills out this picture of salvation. It helps us understand grace in, in a deeper way, redemption of slaves, buying back for a price, being owned. This is our salvation story in Romans 6 applies it further. As as I said, this will be part two on spiritual slavery. Building on last week, Romans 6, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin... For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from those things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that word can be translated master. That's the word for master. The question is, who are you a slave to? Because everyone is a slave according to this passage. Whether you like that image or not, the question is, who or what is your Master. What masters you? Is it sin? Is it impurity? Is it lawlessness in this passage? Or is it God? Is it his righteousness? Let me pray for his help as we look at this. Our Father, we ask that you would open our minds to see more of your truth and who we are, and I pray that you'd help us in our minds and hearts, not to resist these truths, but to rest in these truths. For your glorious grace, we pray. Amen. Amen. We're bound for freedom. And I want us to consider this whole analogy through the lens of the book of Romans, looking at spiritual slavery and sovereign Grace And and where this starts, and he says it multiple times here, is we were slaves to sin. You could say we were totally enslaved to sin. There's no partial slavery. Jesus said no one can serve two masters using the same verb form of what's here. You, You can't serve as a slave to masters. If you're not serving as a slave of the Lord, you're serving your lust, you're serving lawlessness or any other number of things. And the language he uses also harkens back to what we saw in the Old Testament where a poor person without resources might present himself to be bought and to sell himself as an obedient slave, to present himself in that way. Romans 6 uses the present tense for how you continually keep offering yourself to serve. And in our desperate condition, Romans 6.16 says we did that and, and we, we did that with sin our master, who we obeyed and kept presenting ourselves to. This is, this is building on the background of how in, in Israelite society, some would contract themselves to work. Sometimes they would be working off a debt for six years as wages. But here, verse 23 says, If sin is our master, its wages are death eternally. Versus eternal life. That's what it's contrasted with. Eternal life that is free. But look at verse 20. You were slaves of sin. He can't say it any more plainly. That may offend your pride, but the truth hurts, and the truth actually helps to set us free when we know it. Look at chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Again, that's that image of slave language, sold under Verse 18, chapter 7, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. This is so contrary to what the world thinks, that there is good within us naturally. Chapter 8, verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh, this is the unredeemed fleshly mind, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it... The human mind in that state does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's the unregenerate, unable to change, enslaved to the flesh. Physical slaves could not just get themselves out of their condition, and neither can spiritual slaves. Think about earlier in the context, the book of Romans we were in last year. It says in chapter 1 how all suppress the truth. It uses the language in some translations. They have a depraved mind. And it says that before Christ we are without excuse. Chapter 2 begins because of hard and impenitent hearts. And then chapter 3. In fact, go back to chapter 3 and just see how this enslavement affects our depraved mind and heart and will. Chapter 3, verse 11 no one understands. Again, this is speaking of the un, unregenerate. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. There's, there's none, there's no not one good or righteous understanding, seeking for God, or that hasn't turned aside because of this truth. So sometimes we talk about free will, and there's a, a sense in which we have volition, and there's choices we make, but a, a sinner's will, according to Scripture, freely turns aside, and it says here that there are none willingly seeking for God. Slaves could have some freedom of choice in their fields, right? They, they might choose to go here or there, but they couldn't choose to just get themselves out of that state they couldn't just choose to free themselves. They, sinners can choose this sin and they can choose that sin within their nature, but they can't change their very nature. And so as we think of man's choices the, the, in Scripture, these aren't how we get saved. This is why we need to be saved. It's our, our sinful will and hearts and desires. You might say we need a freed will, a will freed from the, what Luther called the bondage of the will. By common grace we should repent, but we don't. Chapter 2 says, "But the God who commands repentance has power to grant repentance." So this is how the servant of the Lord should pray. 2 Timothy 2:25, 2, that God would give repentance and would help Sinners to escape, this is what it says, from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. That will is actually something the, the unsaved are held captive to. We need to pray that God, for people we care about, even this time of year, and they just seem, how can they not see it? We, we see these things. It's not that we're, we're better. We need to pray that God would work in their minds as, as they're told to seek the Lord, but chapter 3, verse 11 says, none of them do. And we wouldn't be any better but for God's grace. We're called to turn to Christ, and yet it says right here in Romans 3, all have turned aside. It's not saying that there is no choice there. It's saying that the unregenerate all make the wrong choice. And, and if you object to Romans chapter 3 and all that he's been saying here, verse 21 says that the law actually stops all mouths. There's creation, there's conscience. He's laid out in these first three chapters. The whole world is accountable to God. If God holds us accountable and holds us responsible, we can know we are, even if our minds wrestle with some of this. The lost don't understand in a saving way, but there is truth of God. Chapter 1 says they know, and yet they suppress. And there is no excuse what... Romans 3.21 is saying there's going to be no mouth making an objection on judgment day. They're going to know all are accountable. And I've shared before how I experienced this in my own life. When I was convicted, when the fear of God came upon me and I knew I was a sinner, I knew if I died right then and there, there would be no excuse or complaint or anything I could offer to God because I knew I was guilty. And then he gave me his grace. But God is not unfair. Sometimes we wrestle with that in our mind. God would be fair. God would be just if all of us died in our sins. We're not robots. We're rebels, willfully refusing common grace in chapters 1 through 2. And So turn to chapter 10, if you will, but we can look at chapter 5 where it calls us enemies, helpless, powerless, and all of that. But look at chapter 10, verse 20 where Paul quotes God in Isaiah, chapter 10, verse 20. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found, this is God speaking, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who do not ask for me. This is the hope here. God makes himself found to people who are not seeking and and even asking. This is the same Isaiah who said, seek the Lord. Sinners should do that, but Romans 3 says there's, None of them on their own who do that. And so God says he shows himself to men even who weren't asking or seeking him. We talk about how I was lost but now am found. I was blind but now I see. I needed to be found by God. I was the one who was lost. God wasn't lost. I was blind but he opened my eyes. I didn't come seeking for God. I knew that in my own experience. But I understood this verse later. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And I understood that he came to seek and save me. To truly say Jesus is Master, Jesus is Lord, you have to do that to be saved. Chapter 10 verse 9 says, but we can't do that without the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 3 says, This is a work of God to say, Jesus is my master. This is something to pray for. I know many of you have family members and friends you're going to be seeing in this next week. And pray for them. Pray for that work as you seek to speak and share the gospel that can free slaves. But here's the good news. Is that God comes to us who are totally enslaved to sin So that we can be, number two, graciously chosen from the slaves. And this is the image. God comes to the slave market of sin. He chooses slaves to buy. This is what they would do in their culture. And he's always chosen to save a remnant, a portion out of the rest. One of the things Paul wrestles with in in Romans is the fact that so many of of the Jews of his day had rejected. But look at chapter 11, verse 5. Chapter 11, verse 5, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. He's chosen to save some from the Jews, this remnant by grace. And from the Gentiles as well, he'll talk about later. But it's not. If, it's, if it is grace, it's not based on works. Why does God choose some and not others? It, it doesn't say here, but grace is unlike human masters who would come and who would choose slaves based on how good they look or how good he thinks they would be in working for him. There's no indication of that in Scripture, anything based on his seeing or foreseeing good in them. And if it was on the basis of what they would do, grace is no longer grace. Grace, by definition, is kindness or favor that is unmerited, unearned by works or willpower. It's not based on what's fair. Remember, what we deserve is hell. This is about mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. It's not getting what's fair. To be chosen by grace means a merciful choice to save a remnant from a hell that all fairly deserve. But There's this question that comes to mind. Is saving some unjust? And this is the question that Paul anticipates in chapter 9, verse 14. Look back at chapter 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. He can choose not to give justice to some. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Sovereign grace speaks of him unconditionally choosing mercy for who he wills. Not based on their will. In fact, verse 18 says he has mercy on Whomever he wills, actually look back at verse 16 where he talks about the human will. So then it depends not on human will. Just to make it clear, it's not dependent on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. One of the translations says, we didn't choose it. It is God who decides to show mercy. In verse 23, he does it in order To make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Which he has prepared beforehand for glory. If that boggles your mind, join the club. But let's also praise the Lord. If you've received that mercy, even if you struggle to understand all these things, praise the Lord for that. And don't argue for what's fair. Praise the Lord. I praise the Lord. I haven't received my fair sentence in hell, that I'm alive, I'm still breathing, and I'm standing here today wanting to declare his mercy, not because of anything better in me, but I give him all the glory for that. And there's questions Paul talks about here about Pharaoh being hardened in his sin judicially, stealing his reprobate state. Pharaoh and Egypt received what they deserved, but Israel did not get what they deserved by mercy Israel was sinful Moses was sinful God chose sinful Moses and rejected sinful Pharaoh showing mercy as he wills why me i mean there's there's questions we have but this is the question i do not have an answer for why why me i've got no explanation except for but God prepared beforehand a vessel of mercy for his glory he chose me but the explanation's not in me apart from him i could do nothing and i would choose nothing to do with him but he chose me I, I didn't give him any reason to but i give him all the glory as he gives me every reason to praise him this is what jesus said in john 15 verse 5 apart from me you can do nothing And then he says in verse 16 to his followers, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And he says that right after that, a slave is not greater than its master. Don't think you're greater than he says. Or that in your flesh you would do anything apart from him. Right before Jesus says it's grace that chose him, he calls them slaves. But then he says... I call you my friends. It's an amazing thing there in John chapter 15. Graciously chosen slaves and to treat them as friends. Even though we are by nature slaves, he treats us not in the way the world would treat slaves. He treats us as friends. Without him we can do nothing. He did it all for us. Slaves being bought didn't choose their own master. They were at the master's mercy and praise the Lord. Our master is merciful. Amen. Believers were graciously chosen from the slaves, and then number three, graciously redeemed as God's own. Ephesians says it this way: God shows us in Him before the creation of the world in love; He predestined us. It says all this to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us. This is free grace, and then it says, "In Him we have redemption." Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And it says he lavished freely this grace upon us. But to have redemption and all that, that's, that's a slave term. That's the, a term from the slave market. So go back to chapter 3 and redemption is used here of buying back, in this case from sin slavery. Romans three twenty three: For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Justified is when we're saved, we're declared righteous by grace as a gift. But here's what it comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He doesn't just choose to be gracious. There is also justice that had to be served through redemption. The payment of a a price. Verse 24 says Christ was put forward by God as a propitiation by his blood. That's where that language of of a payment to actually satisfy and, and put away with the demands of justice. This free gift of grace alone received by faith alone turns away sin's claim. God already owned us as creator. But now as he buys us back in redemption, he doubly owns us as redeemer. When a master would come to the slave market and choose to save, or choose to redeem, I should say, particular slaves, they would now belong to him. He rightly owned them. It wasn't just a potential or hypothetical payment they had been bought with the price and now that was satisfied it was real release they were released in that moment from their former master there was no more claim or payment to be made they were bought back and in this analogy of 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 salvation they were also reconciled with the new lord because they were at odds they were enemies with this lord who's buying them and bringing them back and that's what chapter 5 verse 10 says if you want to look at it for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so this is what his redemption did. And it didn't just make that possible. It actually reconciled us. We are actually made right with God through this work that Jesus does. And it was for particular sinners, not just general There were particular slaves and specific sins that they were redeemed from and reconciled from. Psalm 111 verse 9 says, He sent redemption to His people. Not to the unredeemed world, but His redeemed people. Here's what we teach on our church, uh, what we teach statement. God's Son died at Calvary to effect propitiation reconciliation, those are the verses from Romans, this is part of it, and redemption for his elect people. The sacrifice of Christ is not limited in its value, sufficiency, or worth, but in its intent. This is where it's specific and particular for his sheep, for his own. These are all, There's all verses for all these. His friends, his church, his bride, his children, the many. There's all those statements in In Scripture, it was an actual, penal, life-giving, and legal substitution that fully atoned in a redemptive salvation sense for all who would believe. And part of what that does, to add to that in Romans 6, is his redeeming death on the cross also put to death our old slavery to self and sin. So look back at Romans 6, verse 6, where we started. We know... That our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So it's almost like, picture you were that, you were that slave of sin before, but it's like you were, you were put on the cross, that that slave that you were died with Christ, so that he says in verse six, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then verse 18, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin, that's redemption, and have become slaves of God. So this is what happens. If you're redeemed, you're, you've been set free from sin's power. You're not totally free from sin's presence, but the power now has been broken. You don't have to obey anymore, and you have become slaves of God. And and when you understand this concept, it, these other verses that some of us know make more sense when you have this slave concept here, like 1 Corinthians six nineteen, You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. You understand we're bought by him. We belong to him. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to belong to him. It's a good thing that he owns us, body and soul. That our soul to him belongs. That's our only hope in Christ and death that we sing. We belong to him. And if he is Jesus, that's a good thing to belong to somebody. Believers are graciously chosen, redeemed, and then number four, called to life in Christ. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, what's our part in all this? Number one, that's what we brought to the table. We, were, we brought our sin but what Christ did is number two through four, it's all of grace. Sin spiritually cost us death, Romans six twenty-three. We were slaves of sin that causes spiritual deadness to God. But look at Romans six, verse sixteen. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death? or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. How do we become obedient from the heart? It wasn't just, I'm going to try better. I'm going to turn over a new leaf in 2024. That's, That's not what this is talking about. The scripture talked about how do people get new life? How do they get a new heart? The prophets spoke of how we need to have a Heart transplant. God needs to actually take out our old heart. God needs to actually put in a new heart. Ezekiel 36 talks about this a heart that will be obedient. Or in Ephesians 2, how did that new life happen? But God being rich in mercy. Even when we were dead in our sins, spiritually dead, meaning we weren't moving towards God, all that stuff that Romans 3 talked about, when we were dead, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's what it means to be saved by grace. And then it says later in verse 8, through faith. So there is this response of faith. But then he says right after that, and this is not your own doing. Literally, this is not out of yourselves. He says, it's the gift of God. All of it, the whole thing is part of God's gift, not a result of works, not a result of anything we do so that no one may boast. So that none of us can, can say that we just did that because we were spiritually dead. He gave us life. Then we respond willingly and genu- genuinely because of what he has done. He not only calls us to life, he calls us to live with him in his household. Ephesians 2 goes on to say we're not far off anymore. He actually brings us as members of his own household. But look back at Romans 4. Verse 17, where it says, As it is written, this is God speaking again, I have made you the father of many nations, this was his grace to Abraham, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Think of Lazarus, remember? He's he's been dead four days. Jesus comes and he calls him to life. Lazarus, Come forth. The call is creating what it's calling for. It's, this is what Pastor Corey was preaching out a few weeks ago from 1 Peter 1:3, regenerating grace. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. I didn't cause my first birth any more than I caused my second birth. God's sovereign grace. Causes that. And Jesus told Nicodemus, the new birth is by the Spirit. The Spirit blows as He wishes. This is a calling of God that is, Paul says later in Romans, this calling is irrevocable. Look at chapter 8, verse 30, at this effectual gracious call Romans 8 verse 30 and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified those whom he justified he also glorified verse 32 he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things if he's done all this how can we not believe that God's going to graciously give us what we need and then verse 33 who shall bring any charge against God's elect Elect means chosen. This is the golden chain of salvation. He foreknew, and that speaks of an intimate love relationship. The same root word for how in the Christmas story, Joseph didn't know Mary until after the baby was born in Bethlehem. He obviously was with her on the way and knew her in some way, but he didn't have that intimate love relationship with her, didn't know her in that way. But God knows and puts his love on people in, in beforehand. Not just knowing something about them. That's not how this term is used. But in love beforehand, he predestined, he called, and then all those that he did that for, it says, will be justified. Will be saved. Justified means declared righteous by God the judge. Glorified means the glory that we're going to in heaven. So the wages of sin is death. That was paid for by Jesus. And because of that, our old master now has no longer any legal claim on God's elect, in God's court. Those that God predestines, those he calls, and you can know that if you've trusted him, you were justified at that moment in Christ, a new life will be glorified with eternal life. You say, "How how do I know if that's happened in my life? We'll go back to that famous verse 28. Romans eight twenty-eight. It says, For those who love God, those who are the called according to his purpose. How do you know if you're called? You love God. You love him because he first loves you, as 1 John 4 says. You live because he called you to life. If you truly love God in a way that you did not like before. You you love him. You want to please him. You don't love him perfectly, but you, you can say, I love my master. You are a part of these people and part of this plan. And there's no broken link in this chain of salvation. There's not one of these pieces that falls out. It all holds together. Sin and Satan cannot bring any charge against God's elect because those slaves' crimes are already paid for. They're paid in full. There's no condemnation. Now we dread. If Jesus and all in him is mine. All who are called in this sense will be there when the role is called up yonder. Will you be there? Can you say that you love God? Do you love your master? If you don't yet know him in a love relationship, come to him. And Jesus promises, so this is as clear as any, anything else we've said from Scripture here, Jesus promises in Scripture, Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you come to him, he's not going to turn you away because you're not on the list. If you come to him, he will receive you. And if you want to come to him, if you want to love him, that's evidence right now that his grace is at work in your life. Come to Christ. The one who graciously calls us to life also, fifthly and finally, preserves us to serve forever. Look at Romans eight thirty five: Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Maybe you think he's done all this, but, but can my sin or what I'm going through, can that separate me from this whole plan? Can that separate me from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress. Some people are going through great things here in this room. Persecution. Or famine. Some of our brothers and sisters around the world are going through that. Or nakedness or danger or sword. Verse 37, what's the answer? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, our Master. Nothing and no one can separate the child of God from his eternal love in Christ. This is the perseverance of the saints, it's sometimes called, but it's by the preservation of God Sometimes people say, once saved, always saved. You could say, once a slave, saved by grace, you will always be saved. Those who are eternally secure will persevere by grace. This isn't about just if you've said some prayer, you can be confident you're going to heaven. It's about if that grace works in your life. But here's where we need to turn a corner to application. Because we're not saved to sit. God didn't do all this just so we could sit in comfortable chairs here. At church, we are slaves preserved to serve. And we're going to be doing this forever, so we should start doing it now, getting warmed up. Remember where we started, I love my master. I want to be his slave forever. I want us to think of these two applications. In light of all of his grace, we need to speak of our master. We need to serve our master. Points two through three are how he graciously chooses us. Sometimes you can, we can go back a slide. Where how we would be but for the grace of God totally enslaved so we can be gracious as we speak to the unsaved. They're slaves unaware. They're needing care. They're needing compassion. They're needing mercy. Sometimes some of those points we've talked about have other terms like unconditionally chosen or particular redemption or irresistibly called. I I might tweak some of those adverbs, but I I like the word graciously for for these doctrines of grace, but also to know there's duties of grace, that with God's sovereignty, there's always our responsibility. And so when we think of God graciously choosing and redeeming, we are to choose to be gracious and redemptive. If you have the Application questions in your bulletin. Here's the one for this point. How should these truths move us to choose to be gracious and redemptive in how we think and speak? It's a question to help each other apply and think about. How can I choose to be gracious, especially if someone said something hard or hurtful to me? This is where Romans 12, verse 14 helps us bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 16 of Romans 12. Live in harmony with one another. Seeking to redeem whatever that situation is. Being gracious in it. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. There's our tendency. They say something. We want to say something back. In the same spirit, he says, Give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. There might be family members that you see that it's hard for you to be honorable with, but this is a command of Scripture. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Think about a specific person, what can you do to show Grace to him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? With good. This is our calling. That's what, what I mean by redemptive. Of course, we can't do the kind of redemption that God does, but we're to redeem the time. We're to speak redemptively, is the language of some of Paul's writings. For a good purpose, we're to have gracious thoughts and words and actions. Go to chapter 14, where he talks about how to be gracious even in our judgments, how we think of others. Romans 14, verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant, there's that same word for slave, of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And the context here is debatable matters in verse 1, not something where God has already judged something as sin. But he says, you're not the Lord of the conscience to others. You're not the slave master of your brother or sister. Verse 8, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We belong to Him. He owns us. And so we need to remember how gracious He's been with us. And by His grace, we can choose to reflect that. What about the next doctrine of grace, how we're graciously called to life in Christ. Well, God calls us to graciously seek to share that message of, of life, calling others to this same grace. And I think many of us will have more opportunities or maybe already have this month to speak of things of Christ. I want to encourage you even to encourage people to come be with us next week where they'll hear the, the gospel. But also think about just ways, how can I, how can I share this this message of life, in your discussion guide, the question is, who is an unsaved person? Think of that, a name of someone. You can try to speak of life in Christ to this month. How and when? And then there's, there's verses even from Romans chapter 3 and 5 and 6 and 10 that could help you there. But let's go to Romans 10. Because I mentioned with God's sovereignty comes our responsibility to freely offer the gospel far and wide And this note needs emphasis Romans 10 verse 9 that because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and just understanding this whole study here that to me that makes it more meaningful that what you're confessing here is Jesus is master you're confessing truly that Jesus is the one that I'm going to obey you're not just saying the words. You're, you're confessing, he, he owns me now. It's about him now. That's what it means to be saved. You have to confess Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. You're trusting his work for you in redemption and that he's raised. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I praise the Lord for many of you in this room that are doing that. I'm looking even now at Seth. I know Brian and Amy have also been serving the Lord, seeking to do that with young people. Matt Hanna is going to be with us next Lord's Day. who has been doing that in Taiwan. But this is not just about missionaries that get sent out, although this is very much an application of this passage here, but we are all called in some way to this mission. We're called to go tell it on the mountain. Go tell it on the foothills everywhere everyone needs to hear that Jesus Christ is master and God could sovereignly save people without us but that's not the way he chooses to do it he chooses faith to come by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ he uses us in the process and it's a beautiful thing and there's many we know that need to hear it this christmas Again, Jesus says, All the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So, this last point, we're graciously called or preserved to serve our Master. We're to serve him, we're to serve his people. The discussion guide says, As his slaves were not saved to sit, so who are you serving? Who can you serve? And again, I think we have to ask the question how and when are you going to be obedient? Obedience is not an option for Christians when you understand this whole concept here. But look at Romans 12 one more time, where it uses that same verb form of, of do loss from chapter 6, verse 6, where we're not to be enslaved to sin. But on the positive side, chapter 12, verse 11 do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. There's that verb. Serve him. Slave for him. No longer enslaved to sin. Not serving sin and self like a slave master. Slave away for Jesus, our master. Some of you are slothful. We know that because this is written to Christians. Some are not serving. I have this picture in my mind of a sloth. A sloth not a great picture of active industry and, and i have a temptation in my own spirit to be slothful in some areas some of you are sitting and not serving but if you are saved by grace you are a slave of christ and this verse says stop being lazy or or stop lagging in diligence new american standard so again how can you serve who can you serve this week this season an old hymn says, Master, let me walk with thee in lowly paths of service free. That kind of puts it all together. Master, I want to I learn from you. I want to walk in, in the freedom of serving you as master. And just if you need some examples, verse 13, chapter 12. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. There's going to be less programs going on next couple of weeks, but this isn't about programs. This is about thinking about needs of others. Thinking about someone maybe you could have over or be hospitable with over coffee. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. There's a list there at the kiosk of people who are mourning, even, that you could write to. Think of someone you can encourage, even some of those who were prayed for earlier. But here's the where grace comes in, verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches and his teaching, the one who exhorts and his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. There's mercy because of God's mercy. That should move us to be merciful and to be cheerful as we do it. The Lord loves a cheerful Giver, He gives grace to us so that his grace would flow through us to others. And so if you lack, maybe you're even convicted right now that you feel unfaithful, come to the master. Come to the master who came, all those things we sang about earlier, who, who came, took on the form of a slave, and at the last supper, his last meal with the guys, he actually took on the The very outfit of a slave. He has a towel around his waist as he gets down and he washes their feet. This is the Lord who gave up his life for us. This is the one who calls us to serve him. And so our our closing song talks about coming. If if you feel unfaithful, and all of us are at times. If you're weary, come. If you're weak, come. If you feel unstable at times, come. Bitter at times, broken at times, fearful, guilty, come. And all those who come to him, he will not ever cast out. So let's come to him now in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, it humbles us. It, it's not how we like to think in our pride Lord, I thank you for your grace. I pray that you would continually renew our minds as Romans 12 begins this chapter and that you would specifically help us to help others to serve and to speak of those who don't know you. We pray these things for the glory of our Master Jesus. Amen.